think I like anti-heroes anymore. Growing up, if you had asked me who my favorite superheroes were, I tended to lean towards the more broody lot. Venom, Punisher, Batman. This has continued into my adulthood and shaped my preferences in media for better and for worse. I absolutely loved the Netflix Daredevil series because it allowed the character to be raw and, frankly, kind of a dick. That was always the separating factor between, say, Spider-Man and Daredevil. Matt Murdock had gone through some things, and because of that, he literally could not see the world any other way, pun intended on the whole sight thing. Meanwhile, we have someone like Spider-Man who equally has seen some bad stuff happen in his personal life, yet I would never describe him as anti-heroic. Maybe a bit of an emo, especially when he dances, but not anti-heroic. So where do we draw the line? I think anti-heroism deals with absolutes, a conscious decision to change something in the world at whatever the cost. The driving factor is usually trauma. Batman's parents dying in front of him due to something systemic and predictable. Daredevil's accident compounded with the discovery that his father's seemingly infallible moral code had a price tag on it, even if he did go out doing the right thing in the end. And in the case of Illidan Stormrage, what are his absolutes? Does he have a real absolute, or did retcon after retcon kind of just move him into the position of one? We've talked about it here and there throughout this season, but I really don't like the overarching reasons for bringing Illidan back. And if you ask me point blank, I would say it was a bad idea, despite the fact that it was clearly very popular. This mostly is because it requires a lot of emotional labor and ignoring of things, one of which is that allowing him to be the big dang hero of Legion means that a lot of other characters suddenly either have to be very stupid, very dumb, there is a difference, or both. Old grudges get forgotten, characters look past things that used to be their defining traits, all so we can move the plot forward and get Illidan from the point A of no longer being dead to the point B of being Sargeras's new jailer and quietly shove the Burning Legion out of the plotline. And I'm remembering this moment now just as I'm t doing this recording, and this isn't the script, so pardon me if I ad-lib a little bit, but the thing that really like drove me nuts, despite the fact that like I get why they did it, um, there's a cutscene in Legion right around the Burning Shore invasion where you're getting ready to go to Argus, and I can't remember the name of the Naru, but it's the one associated with the um, the Army of the Light, um, who is kind of questioning Illidan. And the Nari who gives Illidan this whole like very Harry Potter-esque speech of like, you're the chosen one, now you need to accept your fate, and is trying to turn him into a light forged. And Illidan just immediately kills this Naru. Like instantly. Boom. Dead. And all the major lore characters are just there standing around and kind of don't do anything about it. They literally just kind of look at it and are just like, Yep, that's Illidan. Okay, anyways, to space. And it was in that moment where I, I decided that I don't like Illidan Stormrage, uh, especially now, because we talk an awful lot about Mary Sue's in popular media, and that's a term that gets thrown around a lot. But this felt like that in such a hard way. Like, this guy who has murdered uncountable, uncountable amount of people literally just basically killed a space god for no real reason. Like, no talking about it. No discussion. No, like, back and forth. No merits. He's just like, boom, he's dead. And in the plot, we're just supposed to be okay with that. And, and here's the problem. Illidan isn't an anti-hero. He's just treated like one for the purposes of putting a bow on this story and bringing the demon hunters into the WoW fold, a thing that has had zero development post-Legion. It's actually one of the things I truly hate about WoW. It's propensity to forget about its shiny new toys once the new expansion comes out. Blood Mist Isle will always sit out there unupdated, 
the Worgen will probably never get their capital city back. And Illidan Stormrage will always be waiting at the top of the Black Temple, waiting for all of us to tell him to say the line and to get on with the show. People got really angry when Bungie attempted to remove old and outdated content from Destiny recently, but in the long run, I think it would have served a purpose for other than just saving server space. Nostalgia is dangerous in a long-running MMORPG, I think. It's the reason why Blizzard literally had to create WoW Classic and finally get the people stuck on the idea of what WoW should be to shut up. At least for a little bit. It's kind of like not pruning a tree, in many ways. Out front of our house, we have this beautiful dogwood tree. It's tall, pink blossoms. Stunning, especially this time of year. At least from the front. Look around the back, and it's mangled and dying continually, and it's just completely unhealthy. It was never trimmed properly when the past owners lived here, and we've continued that trend of not properly caring for it. So it just dies, over and over. MMOs are a little bit like that. They become so beholden to their lore and nostalgia that they forget to move on and grow. That's why I loved Cataclysm so much. It brought real stakes and choices to the world state of Azeroth, changing things in perpetuity. But that was now almost 14 years ago, and we now have a WoW stuck in a state of decay. NPCs spouting lines about grudges where the context of said story isn't even in the game anymore. And this goes doubly for Burning Crusade, a story that continues to die on the vine because it was never properly sheared. Illidan Stormrage was never a hero. He shouldn't have been a hero. And Black Temple is why. So today on Essence of Azeroth, we're going to look further into the modern obsession of anti-heroism, the multiple retcons of Illidan Stormrage, and dive into the next-to-last major raid of Burning Crusade, the siege on the Black Temple, and the end of the hunt for Illidan Stormrage. This is Essence of Azeroth. Special thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers and followers on Spotify. I've been gone for the majority of the last month, dealing with the Easter season and life, and in general kind of just trying to reset. So I'm sorry for what has been the longest break between episodes since I started this thing back up last year. I'll talk about it a little bit more in a bonus episode later this week up on the Patreon. And speaking of that, this episode is brought to you by the generosity of everyone over on our Patreon. Thank you all for your support. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Promotional consideration for KPR is paid for by the Dragonflight Tourism Bureau. Come fly the friendly skies of the Dragon Isles. And, uh... Then wait for a bit for your dragon's energy to fill back up. You're listening to KPR with me, Loro, because, uh, I, I'll be honest, I didn't do a great job recently with scheduling shows. You ever just get burned out? And I don't mean literally. Sometimes that's a concern when your toilet has been filled with molten lava by a certain fire lord. Ugh. But you're in luck, because we do have a special report from our friends at Radio Free Outland on the current ruckus going on at some place called the Black Temple. Also, the recording came in on a dirty vinyl record, which really just brings up a lot of questions. So, with a special on-site report on the goings-on on that third Illidan storm rage, here's Radio Free Outland reporter, peon number four, 
Take it away, friend. Zug Zug, me am reporter at sight of Big Mead Temple, and lots of fire, and a big hole in, in wall. Smells like duty over there. No like. Alright, me going now. Job done. Huh. I don't think he went to journalism school, folks. But hey, what reporter can afford that kind of thing anymore? Anyways, stick around with me for the next four hours as I give you a tier list of my favorite bathrooms around Azeroth set to experimental furbolg jazz. My number one on the list may surprise you. And if you've ever been to the Goldshire Inn after midnight, then maybe it won't surprise you. This is KPR. We've talked a lot on the show about Lord of the Rings before, specifically the meta around Lotor, its publishing, and its larger effect on the realm of fantasy and high fantasy. And funny enough, that franchise found itself in a similar position that WoW seems to constantly find itself in when it comes to its canon, timelines, and making sense out of changes to lore that come after the fact and sometimes in order to make things make sense. Long before Blizzard had to figure out how to turn Batty Illidan into a grimdark anti-hero while making the lore work, and also keeping that old lore intact, Lotor had a prequel problem. In a post-Lord of the Rings movie trilogy world, it's easy to forget that at one point there was only The Hobbit, a book-slash-short-fiction story for children that Tolkien wrote for his children. However, Tolkien was already attempting to stretch the understandings of high fantasy and prove that the so-called genre of fairy stories, as they were referred to, could be for adults and not just kids. And hey, it worked. Lord of the Rings was a massive success, but it suddenly had the problem of needing its now prequel The Hobbit to make narrative sense, a thing that was not initially intended as part of that story originally. Specifically, we see this in the Hobbit chapter Riddles in the Dark, the scene in which Gollum and Bilbo play a game of wits to decide the fate of a magic ring. The same ring that would eventually become the One Ring, but at the time was simply a magical item and Gollum was a bit of a different character, just trying to hold on to kind of a magic bauble that didn't matter much. Much like we talked about in the Goblins episode, the early Goblin archetype was that of a diminutive trickster. Something technically evil, but so small and ineffectual, that it was of no real concern or worry. Gollum was very much originally in this category, and not the eventual bipolar warped monstrosity of Gollum that a majority of fans know and love today. Riddles in the Dark was a scene that, in the original publishing of The Hobbit, had far less consequences than it would later in revised editions that changed not only the context of this magic ring to match the One Ring, but also brought about changes to the character of Gollum. And I bring all this up because this is very much in the same territory that World of Warcraft has always lived in, trying to rationalize its old lore of a game that's been around for 20 years versus doing new things and wanting to update the world without breaking that old vision. Which is to say that it's all living on a razor's edge. One of the things that draws WoW fans in is the fact that all versions of the game's lore pretty much exist all the time, in the same spaces. It's the kind of thing that only works and makes sense in the medium of video games. And while things have changed somewhat, there's great examples of this, including how the throne room in Orgrimmar at various times has included all the war chiefs at once. 
It's literally Schrodinger's box. No versions and all versions of the WoW timeline exist in this one room. And this works fine for the publisher for as long as they're adding new content and new hubs that don't directly interact with that old world in overt ways. However, that was very much the issue with Legion, an expansion that attempted to draw upon old lore while also acting somewhat as a sequel expansion to Burning Crusade without rationalizing how Azeroth and WoW had changed in that 10 year or so time period. And this isn't just an issue of bringing back a dead Illidan to make the narrative of Legion make sense. It stretches farther than that. Bringing back Illidan also required a core change of the character, or more specifically, required the characters around Illidan to suddenly ignore or allow the trespasses of the past that Illidan put upon them. This could be argued as just being a case of character amnesia and doing what needs to be done to win the fight, blah blah blah. The Burning Legion is invading, and when faced with the brink of destruction, it makes logical sense that the heroes of Azeroth would go to any lengths to win. However, this becomes more difficult in practice when you can hop a portal and go to Outland, where all of those sins and faults are fully presented in complete original narrative context. For some, that is the selling point of World of Warcraft. Burning Crusade exists almost 100% as it did back in 2007. At any point, I can go back to Hellfire Peninsula or Black Temple, and it's all the same. No changes, no updates. But that also makes it all the more difficult to rationalize Illidan as savior, especially if you aren't a player like me that's been around since the very beginning of the game and has spent way too much time playing it. And nothing represents this more than the apex of the Illidan storyline in Burning Crusade, the attack on the Burning Black Temple by the forces of Azeroth, and a final confrontation between Jailer and Prisoner. So let's talk about Black Temple. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Black Temple Raid was released as part of a patch 2.1.0 in May of 2007, the first major content patch of Burning Crusade, which is to say it was the first downloadable patch, which is to say that that was pretty new territory, all things considered, for video games at the time, especially when we think about video games, especially PC games, still being somewhat into the expansion pack territory of it all. While the opening of the former Temple of Karabor was the main selling point of the patch, it also included a ton of quality of life changes and updates to Outland, including the addition of the Druid Epic Flight form, the Netherwing Reputation Grind, Ogre Law, new quest hubs, and more. And one of the things that Burning Crusade did really well was structuring its quests in a way that funneled players straight towards Shadowmoon Valley and Black Temple. It was also the first case of the narrative involving the player character directly as more than just an adventurer of Azeroth looking for fame or gold, but as a hero of note and import in the story, because at this point, your character was involved with all the heroics of Vanilla WoW. We've talked about Shadowmoon Valley before, but the history of the Temple of Karabor is that of a holy site that's kind of always been in turmoil. Before it was Illidan's hangout, it was the corrupted headquarters of Magtheridon, and before that it was where the shaman Ner'zhul trained acolytes, and before that it was a Draenei holy site and center of Draenei worship upon landing on Draenor. In many ways, the history of the Black Temple isn't unlike the temples of the Jewish people found in the Bible under constant assault and trials from outside forces. It's also just a beautiful area. Seriously, go to Warlords of Draenor, yes I know that's a big ask, and fly around the Karabor grounds in Shadowmoon. 
it's really a shame that it never got used as anything more than a big set piece in that expansion, as it's just some of the best architecture design found in that game, and why I can't truly hate uh, Warlords of Draenor. Like, there are so many beautiful areas in that game, and even if they don't get used, like, just looking at them leaves me in awe. But the Black Temple is not the Temple of Karabor. Illidan took a place despoiled by the Verning Legion and turned it into a war fortress, hiding deep inside the temple within with his secrets as a place to keep the prying eyes of the demons and the forces of Azeroth from seeing what was going on. Which is to say that it makes the perfect location for retcons, as seen in the Illidan novel that was the basis for trying to make canonical sense out of why Illidan was suddenly a good guy. The too long didn't read is that the Black Temple was the site upon which Illidan trained his demon hunter army, taking those most hurt by the Legion and offering them a chance at striking back at the thing that hurt them most, no matter the cost. However, the Black Temple holds more secrets than just the demon hunter player class. Featuring nine bosses, the Black Temple raid was the third tier of raiding in Burning Crusade, falling in sequential order after Tempest Keep and Serpent Shrine Cavern. And I guess you could say after Battle of Hyjal, but like I said, it's so hard to count Hyjal because it was not quite on the same level as TK and Serpent Shrine, but it wasn't Black Temple either. I mean, it's, it's literally a holdover. In fact, the attunement for Black Temple required the player to not only complete the Akama questline in Shadowmoon, but also killing Alar in Temple Keep while dressed up as a broken Draenei, as well as the Lich Boss in Battle for Hyjal. The opening to the Black Temple appeared on a small wall inside the main courtyard, leading to the sewers underneath the temple and allowing a place for the Azeroth forces to slip in with Akama and Maiev. At this point in the story, Illidan is at his weakest and his most paranoid. His two main lieutenants dead? He's also at his weakest thanks to the Legion story retcon that he had just led a charge into the Dreadlord homeworld to capture an artifact that would allow Illidan to find and track Argus, the throne world of Burning Legion. In regards to difficulty, Black Temple was a challenge for pugs and a weekly struggle for less organized guilds. While not the biggest raid in WoW, its bosses featured a new level of difficulty thanks to unique mechanics and a pretty large jump in regards to the gear check from Serpent Shrine and Hyjal to BT. The Black Temple also actually features different lore in the tabletop RPG sourcebooks, which is kind of cool. In that version of Warcraft, Ner'zhul crafted the Black Temple as a hulking iron fortress, serving as a massive prison from past wars. Also of interest is a Legion-era quest from the bronze dragon Vormu, sending players into the Black Temple to deal with a change to the timeline and the battle plans from Illidan to invade Mardoom, which may be the in-game explanation for the splintering timeline. Coincidentally, Vormu is also the raid time-walking quest-giver. And as with a lot of Burning Crusade content, Black Temple was originally planned to be part of Vanilla WoW and be the final challenge in the original game. But as those things almost always go, the team ran out of time and server space, which I feel like we're just constantly saying. So with the stage set, let's head into the sewers of the Black Temple and begin the siege. I remember the first time I began to truly hate the anti-hero archetype. I was in my mid-twenties living in Toledo and spending a lot of my spare time in a local comic book store. We played Heroclix and Magic the Gathering there mostly, but I was also deep in my buying ten or so comic books each week phase. Ah, the joys of still having expendable income. This was also a period where I would buy almost anything that looked interesting. And around that time, the renowned comic book writer Frank Miller, most well known for the Batman series The Dark Knight Returns, also returned to the comic zeitgeist with Holy Terror, a 2011 story described as a costume vigilante fighting the Islamic State. It's important to remember that the United States as a country was still in its tail-end obsession with freedom and fighting terrorism. Osama bin Laden had just been killed earlier that year, 
a thing I will always remember because John Cena announced it during a WWE event that I was watching. However, there's still plenty of Islamophobia to go around, even past the George Bush years. Uh, his son, not just the first one. And Frank Miller's holy terror channeled this energy to disastrous results. As it turns out, this was actually a story Miller, a story that uh, Frank Miller had pitched to DC called Holy Terror Batman, in which the Cape Crusader would take on Al-Qaeda's invasion of Gotham City, but ultimately DC turned it down because, holy crap, who needs that story? It's important to note here that Frank Miller's Batman and his most famous Batman in The Dark Knight Returns is one of absolutes. It's a dark, dirty, angry character who truly views the world in day and night. And it's no shock that this version of Batman is based off of the characterizations of past Clint Eastwood characters. The perfect encapsulation of the Reagan-era policies of which he was created from, Miller's Batman is a bully, an egotist, and almost doesn't even resemble the character. Holy Terror was, for all intents and purposes, an off-brand Batman story. It's also one that the comics community at large detested and mostly rejected. Miller would go on to defend Holy Terror, saying that it was him channeling his anger at the war and terrorism in general, even going as far as saying on his personal blog that, quote, I'm too old to serve my country in any way. Otherwise, I'd be gladly pulling the trigger myself, end quote. Uh, yikes. And this highlights the problem with antiheroes in many ways. This kind of logic and thinking ends up being the natural end state and conclusion to characters that are nothing more than the fulfillment of pent-up anger, violence, or frustration. That's why I cannot drive around my small town without seeing at least one Punisher logo sticker on a cop car, despite the fact that the creator of the Punisher was particularly anti-force and anti-police and probably grew tired of explaining the Punisher was not a hero, but a cautionary tale. And to bring all of that background to Warcraft, it's why I think Illidan doesn't work as a character despite Legion's jamming of him into the narrative. While I think Legion is a fantastic expansion as a whole, it was also the beginning of a long slump of created failures, failures for the team, only ceasing with Dragonflight and moving the narrative of Azeroth away from past grudges and heroes turned inevitable villains. Illidan was an artifact from another time, retconned and rewritten time and again to serve the purposes of the story and canon, but he wasn't a hero. Even in his final message to the player, character, upon finishing the Legion questline that sees him staying behind on Argus to babysit a nail-jailed Sargeras, Illidan shows no regrets and, in the end, sees all of his actions, all the terrible things he did, as all being worth the price of admission. Countless souls destroyed, scores of enemies and heroes alike slain, innocent people caught in the crossfire wherever he went, all so that he could finish his personal vendetta. And Black Temple is literally a monolith in dedication to all of that. It contains the worst mistakes and most egregious sins of the former Night Elf Mage, with it all ending on the very top of the temple and with Illidan laughing to his once former death. So, let's walk through this tour of Illidan's soul. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We start in the Karabor sewers, guarded by what is left of Illidan's Naga guard, the Coilfang. Basically leaderless at this point, the Naga still serve Illidan, most likely out of not really knowing the final fate of their former leader, Lady Vaj. In fact, the first boss, High Warlord, Nagentus, even still references the Lady Naga as if she still lives. 
He's also a pretty strict gear check for raids that were looking to bust open Black Temple, along with a mechanic that requires players to pay attention to their inventory. The Warlord will impale players with spine spears that stuns and deals damage until another player loots that spine off of the player, with a now usable item in their inventory. In turn, the spears must be used to break his title shield, which upon breaking did almost 10,000 damage to the entire raid. Because of this, the healers needed to be able to predict the damage and prepare accordingly. It also meant you needed to coordinate who was using the spear and when, so that you knew when the damage was coming. For their efforts of downing this Naga Anomaly, which is an official uh, WoW Wiki entry by the way, you get some level 141 gear and potentially one of many chances at a rare pet in Black Temple. The sewers lead players back up into the courtyard and to the outdoor training grounds of the Illidari army to face Supremus, a massive abyssal that guards the front door of the temple. Now, despite being staunchly anti-demon, Illidan actually had quite a number in his army. This all stems from the massive power source the mage hid within the temple, the Reliquary of Souls. This is the font of soul power that Illidan stole from the graves of Akandun, and used as fuel for his spell that opened a portal to Mark Doom in order to go after the homeworld of the Dreadlords. In turn, this power source also allowed him to control the demons left behind in the Black Temple, among other things, after the defeat of Mactheridon. So, yes, in addition to grave robbing, we can also add in the torture and extinguishing of souls to Illidan's list of sins. Cool. Supremus is a basic tank and spank until he sets his gaze on a random party member, running at them. If he manages to get a melee attack off, then it's a one-hit kill. Otherwise, it's a pretty standard encounter, but it's always funny watching these boss fights that have this kind of, like, he set his gaze on you uh, kite mechanic, because Supremus's uh, model is absolutely massive. So just the fact that, like, he is kind of running at one person nonstop while taking up as much space as he does is very funny to me. From here, players enter the temple proper, and have the opportunity to kill the next four bosses in any order. This includes the Shade of Akama, Terran Gorefiend, Gurtog Bloodboil, and the aforementioned Reliquary of Souls. For the sake of canon, I think the first boss tackled should always be the Shade of Akama fight, but also for practicality's sake, as beating the Shade removes aggro from all of the broken Draenei in Black Temple and opens up vendors in the center room. But what of the Shade? Narratively, this is an interesting fight because it's the conclusion of a storyline in Akama and the Broken Draenei, a race that came super close to being playable in Burning Crusade. Mutated and harmed by the fell energies that eventually doomed Draenor, the Broken long suffered under the foot of various fascists throughout their history. However, Akama always held up hope that he could one day make things right and give back his people their holy temple of Karabor, which is initially what Illidan uses to keep the broken people under his thumb. However, Akama isn't stupid and wasn't ready to trust the word of a man in Illidan who has made promises to other people that go against the mage's plans. Eventually, Akama started playing both sides and began working with Maiev to help her night elf regime capture Illidan and free the Black Temple. At this point, though, Illidan is so deeply untrusting of even his top lieutenants that he smells Akama's duplicity coming from a mile away. So he creates a way to both hold the broken in captivity while also punishing Akama. By using the reliquary's power, Illidan is able to break Akama's soul into two halves, light and dark. Illidan threatens to permanently sever this spirit bond and leave only the darkness, the Shade of Akama, forever damning the broken Draenei. Which leads adventurers into the first side room of the temple to break loose the bondage of the broken. The, first, the fight itself is a horde-style encounter. The enemy type, not the faction. <laughs> Players must defend the spirit of Akama while the ceremony takes place and reunite the two halves once more. 
after this mini-event where Akama announces that the broken Draenei will no longer serve the Illidari. And after this, all of the broken NPCs in Black Temple become unhostile, and you now have access to vendors in the center room. Sadly, Akama's eventual fate is not only an unhappy one, but hey, wouldn't you know, Illidan is once again involved. A questline in Legion for the Demon Hunter class hall involves Illidan telling you to bring Akama back into the fold by force if necessary. And depending on which of the lieutenants you picked for your class hall, this will change what happens to Akama. If you choose the less stringent one, Akama joins Illidan willingly, which um, feels out of place. However, if you choose the more fascisty one, the choice involves Akama's previous punishment. He resists, and the demon hunters perform the exact same soul-splitting ritual on Akama as the last time, leaving him to once more serve unwillingly. But hey, Illidan's a good guy, right? From here, you'll venture up to the next room to meet a somewhat familiar face, and one we've talked about more than a few times on this show. Terran Gorfiend, the first true Death Knight, and a mistake brought about by you. Yes, you, specifically. If you skipped the Shadow Moon Valley quests, then you'd be remiss to not know about the storyline in which the player inadvertently helps Terran Gorfiend rematerialize back into the living world. Stuck in the nether space between realities, Terran waited long for someone to come along that would free him from his bondage. And as usual, the heroes of Azeroth are more than willing to help a bad guy if it means getting some loot or XP. Good job. We've now done two episodes on the lore behind the first Death Knight and one of the first Necrolites, Terran Gore. And I find him interesting because in many ways he's the mirror opposite of Illidan's demon hunters. The Necrolites were the first orc warlocks created by Gul'dan, meant to serve as a new power source and army for the Burning Legion on Draenor, not unlike how the Demon Hunters were also created through dark magic and ritual. This goes one step further during the Second War when Gul'dan places the souls of his Shadow Council into the bodies of fallen Lordaeron knights, combining the physical might of a warrior with the supreme magical power of a warlock. Now, Gorfiend was slain in Outland by Torellian, as the planet was being sundered by Nazarul's portal hopping. But I have to assume that the normal rules of how souls work no longer apply to Terran, as his spirit now was dissociated from his body and still just hanging around in Outland. It wouldn't be until he tricks the player character during a questline in Shadowmoon Valley during Burning Crusade that he gets his form back. How does he end up back in Black Temple? There's not a real explanation in-game, other than that his soul felt compelled to return to Karabor, and in the process, Illidan allowed him to take control over the Shadowmoon Orc clan once more. Now moving on, there's no lore significance to our next boss, the Fell Orc leader, Gurtog Bloodboil, other than that this is the last remnants of the Fell Orc Horde. And for a while, this boss was mostly known as a massive healer check in raid progression. Heal checks were somewhat rare at the time, with healer cooldowns being fewer and far more between than they are now. However, Gurtog's ability to inject fell rage into random targets also called for players to, at any time, know which of their buttons reduced damage. This was a tough fight for newer guilds that really called class knowledge into play. And in general, it's an interesting fight because it's one of the few uh, unique Fel Orc models that they would use again, uh, but I always thought Gurtog looked really cool. Finally, the last non-sequential boss is one we've hyped up for the last few minutes, the Reliquary of Souls. And I want to point out that of all the things Illidan has done in the name of trying to defeat the Legion, I think the Reliquary is by far the worst and most unforgivable. It also pinpoints that, for Illidan, defeating the Legion has less to do with saving Azeroth than it does with Illidan destroying a thing that has made him feel fear for the first time in his life, to feel lesser. That's what we're really talking about when we look at the legacy of Illidan and why I hate the resolution of Legion. It not only validated Illidan's campaign, but tries to turn it into some kind of wisdom, like he was just doing the right thing. 
And this brings us to Reliquary, a boss that is literally the manifestation of the hundreds of thousands of angry souls from the Draenei crypts of Auchendoon. The device Illidan used to steal these souls is also leaking out the haunted spirits into the Black Temple, making the run-up to this boss a gauntlet of never-ending ghost enemies similar in style to that of the Bat Tunnel found in Nax Ramus. The fight itself is a DPS race and a horde mode battle, fighting through three phases separated by waves of enemies. However, a wrench gets thrown into the fight with phase two, where the boss will spell steal and reflect at random moments on top of the constant damage aura that is going on. Also, this is another healing check, as everyone takes damage equal to 50% of all of their damage done. As you can imagine, this means everyone will be taking damage all the time and fast. This is probably the hardest of the bosses in Black Temple, if only because the phase switches were a real struggle for uncoordinated guilds and groups. However, beating this last boss opens up the pathway to begin climbing the temple and to enter the den of mortal delights. Yes, that's right, it's demon time. Of all the things that got a bit of flavor text added to them in the Illidan novel, it's the Den of Mortal Delights and the Terrace that became kind of my favorite. So much of the Black Temple is all about it being spooky and corrupt and demonic. Then the top layer is just blood elf dandies laying around and banging succubus women and drinking uh, ether wine. The canon is that these blood elves that just appear to be living the good life were all upper-class types who followed Kael'thas to Outland. So essentially, the blood elf, uh, higher social crust, we should say, that were probably not going to make it very far in the new blood elf society, so they decided to stick with the good blood and go with their king. Now, without their former king, and with barbarians literally at the gates, it appears these elves have just decided to let the good times roll. And you know what? We respect it. The world's ending. Somebody's coming to kill them all, and they're like, but I'm laying on this rec this recliner and eating grapes. Why would I get up now? It's also just a weirdly beautiful area. Floating waterfalls, plants everywhere, cool architecture. It's just so unlike anything else we've seen in Outlands. Likewise, our next boss fight against the Shivara leader, Mother Shiraz, gives us some very different lore. Shiraz is the one that will later save Prince Kale from his seemingly final death back at Tempest Keep, allowing the now fell corrupted elf to appear in Magister's Terrace. Being the leader of the concubines, she may also have connections to Karazhan and all of those demon women we've heard so much about on KPR. However, the actual boss fight is pretty basic, besides the fact that it's one of the first fights in a long time that required some elemental resistance gear in the form of Shadow Resist. The biggest hurdle is a 10 second silence that she can cast at random, meaning that a healer could get shut out for a very long time without much to do. Finally, the last hurdle before that fateful duel up against Illidan is with his Blood Elf Council. These former generals of Kael'thas actually get a lot of extra dialogue in the Illidan book, which I highly recommend anyways if you've been listening to this and haven't read it already. And it kind of highlights the fact that they're all sycophantic suck-ups vying to be daddy's favorite. Like, they're literally, like, arguing about whose plan is better, and the entire time Illidan in the book just does not care. He does not care about any of these guys. And they're all just like, yes, my plan will be the one to lead us to victory. No, mine! It's very good. And despite the fact that they are the last line of defense, it doesn't mean that this PvP-styled encounter was easy. Facing off against four powerful and mostly untauntable enemies leads to a chaotic and unpredictable encounter, as most PvP-style boss fights in World of Warcraft tend to be. And this shares a lot of similarities with the King Mulgar fight in Ghoul's Lair, along with the same steep requirement in DPS and healing. There's multiple moving pieces to this fight, which includes separating the paladin away from his group to keep them from benefiting from devotion aura, a poison debuff placed on healers, a spammed circle of healing spell from the priest, and a mage that uses arcane explosion whenever damaged. Old school WoW just loves its PvP fights. 
And it's something we'll see back again multiple times in Lich King. Um, and I actually wish they would kind of bring them back. They've gotten away from doing these. And I, I think what you recently saw in the first Dragonflight raid uh, with the four avatars, where they're kind of all out at once and you're kind of playing around their individual abilities, but you also have to eliminate them all at the same time. I think that's kind of the, the modern version of these. Because just speaking from my own experience, because I did this fight at level, um, PvP fights tended to be where a majority of groups, whether we're talking about a guild or a pug, tended to falter because you suddenly had to ask people to use buttons that probably weren't even on their bar. And one challenge now remains, sitting atop the Black Temple itself. Is Illidan waiting for death, or does he think victory is absolute? It could be either, or neither. The book paints Illidan as seeing both the Burning Legion and the army of Azeroth coming for his neck as an inevitability, that everything he did in Outland was all in service of this very moment, which I don't know is a good thing or not. Honestly, one of the problems with the Legion retcons is that it turns Illidan from a crazed despot holed up in a bunker and yelling at his foes to come and get him, to the Black Knight from Monty Python the Holy Grail yelling about how it's merely a flesh wound and that all of his limbs have been, even after all of his limbs have been cut off. It's just such a drastic change in the core of the character, to, in my opinion. At least the Illidan of Burning Crusade had real conviction. He had a plan. The Legion Ratcon of Illidan might as well not even exist here, as his sole purpose is to get beat, seemingly die, and then come back as the mage boy who lived. But the Illidan that was the big bad boss atop of the Black Temple? That guy was scary. He didn't have anything else left to lose. This was his last fight. And possessing one of the most powerful weapons in existence and a full-on magical rage, we meet Illidan atop of the temple with a Kama and Maiev in tow ready for what was, at the time, the biggest encounter in World of Warcraft, not topped until the Lich King encounter at the end of Wrath. The Illidan fight comes in four phases, with the first being Illidan and his warglaives against the entire party. The biggest danger in this phase is his parasitic Shadow Fiend, which will spread among the party if you get too close to anyone, and deals 5,000 damage every second for 10 seconds before finding a new target. The tank will also be dealing with Illidan's Shear, that does 60% of the tank's health over 7 seconds if they don't mitigate it in some way. After enough damage is dealt, Illidan will throw down his glaives to summon fell spirits that the party must contend with, all while he flies around the temple. Illidan will continue to spellcast until both fell spirits are downed, which must be tanked by the, their individual warglaive. You'll see them sitting in the arena. If the mob gets too far away from the weapon in the ground, it'll basically enrage the mob, and it gets a 500% damage increase buff, which, as you could guess, is bad. Get the demons back in their prisons, and Illidan will drop down for phase 3, which is arguably where the real fight starts. Not only does Illidan have all the same abilities as phase 1, but he can now channel his inner demon, gaining a 500% damage increase for 60 seconds and dealing AoE shadow damage to everyone near him. He'll also summon shadow demon mobs in this form that stun enemies and lock onto a target until it's killed. This is a busy phase of the fight, and one of the most important things is to not lose track of your party. With this many moving pieces, one thing can go south, and the next thing you know, it's led to a full wipe. This is yet another boss battle from this era where having a warlock tank available to kite adds and to handle the shadow magic damage from Illidan's demon form comes incredibly handy. Seriously, just make a warlock a tanking spec. Just do it. It'd be great. The final phase triggers when Illidan is down to 30%, with Maiev now joining the encounter and occasionally locking the Illidari leader in a trap that increases his damage taken. Your warlock tank will yet again take center stage here, tanking the demon Illidan, while the party uses slows such as ice traps and earthmine totems at all times to keep him down. Maiev's trap will also remove the enrage buff on Illidan. Eventually, Illidan is downed, and he gives Maiev one of the most memorable lines in all of World of Warcraft. You have won, Maiev, but the Huntress is nothing without the hunt. You are nothing without me. 
Like I said, I much prefer the villain Illidan to the redeemed anti-hero that we eventually get from the Legion expansion. This guy had convictions. He was ready to die for his empire atop of a broken, haunted temple. That version of Illidan sacrificing everyone around him and everything he built makes perfect sense. I don't know who the Illidan of Legion was even supposed to be, other than a means to an end. So let's just pretend that Legion hasn't happened yet, and we've reached the apex of our Burning Crusade expansion tale. Illidan dies, supposedly, and the raid gets tier 6 tokens. Everyone's happy, right? Well, I mean, Maiev no longer has a life's purpose, Akama is stuck with a haunted temple, and Outland is still a complete mess. But hey, it's over. Burning Crusade's done. Wait, no, no, it isn't. This didn't even have anything to do with the Burning Legion. What are they doing? What? Kelphalos? You mean Black Temple isn't the end of this expansion. But the, the back of the box, it said Illidan was... I mean... <sighs> Next time on Essence of Azeroth, we're going to finish the fight and head back to the Eastern Kingdoms because the Burning Legion has taken over the Sunwell Islands. We'll talk about the confusing lore of the Sunwell Raid, Caligos, and Avena. and if you don't know, know the name of Avena, A, don't be surprised, and B, we'll explain it with the power of manga. And, of course, the eventual fate of the Blood Elf Paladins, and why the Sunwell content was so cool. And, as a personal note, a thanks to everyone who put up with me, basically taking the month of April off. It was absolutely needed, both from a personal life standpoint, but also to keep me from getting really burned out. I'm ready to finish our discussion about the Burning Crusade and move on to sillier topics in the next season. But for now, we have one more patch of content to go, and it happens to be one I know pretty well, as it was the first faction rep grind I ever got to Exalted. I had to have that tabard. Until then, take care. When your toilet has been filled with molten lava by a certain fire lord. <laughs>